Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking about the rules to protect students when things go wrong, how going through higher education influences your voting behavior, there's new survey data out on postgrads, and degree apprenticeships face a crunch time. It's all coming up. 29%, nearly a third of UK domicile PGTs thought about leaving their course this year. That, that, that is just, that, that is really, really concerning, you know. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's editor-in-chief, Mark Leach, and joining me well above the minimum service levels of HE debate this week are three fantastic guests, as always. In South East London, it's Diana Beach, CEO of London Hire. Diana, your highlight of the week, please. Okay, Mark. I think my highlight of the week has to be our Access HE conference, which we hosted at the University of East London on Thursday. And it's been a highlight for me because it was not only the first conference that we've hosted as a team since I've been at London Hire. Can you believe it? Thank you, pandemic. Um, But it's also been about collaboration. So it's been really lovely being able to bring people together from schools, colleges, universities and wider employer groups. So yeah, a milestone moment for me. Lovely. And in Sheffield, it's Mark Bennett, Director for audience and editorial at Find University. Mark, your highlight of the week, please. Well, I wanted to say that my highlight would have been uh, bottom of the table Sheffield Wednesday beating top of the table Leicester City, but I'll have to settle for a last-minute equaliser instead. And, and just a bit of general relief that, um, you know, there are no negative highlights to do with international students. The highlight of last week, I think, was the, the more positive vibes there to keep it more on topic. Hmm. And in Stoke, it's Wonky's Associate Editor, Sunday Blake. Sunday, your heart of the week, please. My professional highlight was judging the category of inspiring course at the Independent Higher Education Conference. And my personal highlight was the Doctor Who viewing party I had with my friends because Doctor Who's back on, which is going to be all over my Twitter for as long as the season runs. Great. Now, we start the week with... With the very wonky sounding minimum service levels. Mark, what's all this about? So this was announced by Gillian Keegan at the Conservative Party conference in early October, an event that already feels quite far back in UK political time. And it's arrived. It's a consultation on establishing minimum service levels during strike action in educational settings, including at universities. What this actually is for HE, though, is an evidence-gathering exercise to determine whether a minimum service level or MSL would actually work. So as Jim says on Wonky, it's a consultation on a consultation. And in fact, it looks like the aim of this consultation on a consultation is to establish the impact of MSL on the impact of strikes. Meanwhile, House of Commons Education uh, Committee has also launched a similar call for evidence for a forthcoming inquiry into the impact of the strikes, particularly the marking boycotts and the policies put in place by providers with a possible aim of setting up a standard mitigation policy. So this is interested in the government response to the strikes, which included various letters to OFS and UUK, as well as some flexibility for international students and trainee teachers. I mean, personally, I guess it's positive that we're getting this kind of evidence gathering approach ostensibly on behalf of students. On the other hand, part of the aim must be to make industrial action less effective. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who'd prefer a version of the sector in which it just felt less necessary. Hmm. 
Right, there's a lot here. So, Diana, the, 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 there's there's never not going to be a world, is there, where where students aren't affected by events, whether it be it COVID or industrial action or, or things like that. And as long as the taxpayer continues to subsidise higher education to the extent it does, the government is going to want a, a say in 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 all of this, isn't it? But what's the balance between, I guess, the long arm of the of government policy and and what universities should be doing here for for their own students themselves? Yeah, big question mark. I, I think you're absolutely right when you said the word balance because. On the one hand, I can see where the government's coming from. I can see there's the argument that students and taxpayers are paying for a service and this service should be delivered. So the government wants to do what it can to make sure um, that students aren't as disrupted as they have been over the past year. And, you know, there has been some sad incidences out there with students not graduating with their peers. And we don't want a repeat of that. But I do think, on the other hand, the DfE really does need to get its own house in order first and work out where universities sit because there's a lot of inconsistency going on in policy at the moment. I mean, just look at the debate over pension contributions, uh, for example, particularly the teachers' uh, pension scheme. Uh, The DfE is saying it can't underwrite contribution increases for universities as it is doing for schools and colleges because they aren't, you know, traditional public sector institutions. Yet when it comes to this minimum service level stuff, uh, it's suddenly doing a consultation um, and it's treating universities, or at least trying to, in the same way as it does colleges and universities. So I'd really like to see the DfE have a clear position on where universities sit first and foremost before it does go any further. And certainly, I mean, I guess on on campus, this is a very live issue, isn't it, in terms of what people feel like they've missed out on. Um, but um, uh, there's a bit of a disconnect, isn't it, between um, I guess people's reality or, or disconnect between I guess their you know what they what they perceive and what um, what uh, what the reality might be. In that um, you know it's very difficult to set uh, expectations ahead of time, though universities try. Um, there's often a mismatch of expectations whether or not there's been any kind of disruption um, you know we've we've had complaints about contact hours and things like that no matter whether there's um, you know COVID going on questions about online questions about industrial action etc cetera, etc cetera. so I guess is there a job to be done into better managing expectations about just the baseline you know you know, Julian Keynes was the minimum service expectation before we get into these kind of mitigations. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is also why um, when uh, module leaders are talking about their modules to prospective students, they have to say, you know, that the actual module might be subject to change. Um, otherwise, the student could, you know, select a university based on what module is going to be delivered or what type of teaching is going to be delivered, get there and it not happens. And then there's a compl- you know, an easy complaint to be made. Um, I think... For me, obviously, I want a sector where there isn't a constant threat of industrial action, um, not a government that shrugs its shoulders and sees sort of industrial action in HE as so much of a given that we have to systematize, systemize how we minimize the inevitable destruction disruption. Um, I think that the whole point of industrial action is it's meant to be disruptive. And it, this kind of, I'm, again, I might be wrong. I know some people have much better formulated opinions than me, but it reminds me a little bit of the public order bill back in May, where we're sort of getting this uh, approach to, well, here's something that's meant to be disruptive. So how do we not disrupt it? Um, and in terms of mitigation, I guess my question immediately from a sort of student point of view is who is going to be covering the teaching and marking? Because yes, students do complain when they don't get what they expect, but students also were very unhappy uh, during the last round of strikes when older students, and when I say older students, I mean year groups, not chronological age. So like older students were marking the work of newer students 
and you know that causes all kind of problems around how qualified they are uh where issues like staff student relationships would sit in that case <laughs> um i did have a think about this last night and i was coming up with all kinds of ideas around what i would do around this if if minimum service uh agreements were brought into place and i was thinking like would something like an, a blanket no detriment policy work better um, like the one brought in during the pandemic. Um, and then on the consultation website itself, when I had a look, it said that um, ensuring education to continue as far as possible could include like remote education, like online. But we both know, or we all know here, that students were really not happy with that. Or, you know, they weren't happy during the pandemic when teaching went online. And there were still loads of calls for refunds. I, I think NUS even led one of the calls for, for refunds. So... Hmm. Um, yeah, Mark, re- refunds are refunds are tricky, aren't they? I think. Um, where are we? I mean, there, there are there other. Is anyone going to propose for this way in the consultation that RFS takes a a greater role, greater role in um, kind of setting setting these kind of minimum minimum service levels? Not to sound too trap, but I, I, I hope not. I mean, I, I have to agree with pretty much everything Sunday just said. You know that you have to wonder what this is actually going to try and establish. I was also thinking, you know, well, what you know, what would it actually look like? I mean. Is it going to be some slightly sinister scenario where university staff just simply, I mean, you, how you could even get to this, that they just simply aren't able to strike, that they're regarded as, you know, being kind of exempt from that? Or, you know, to kind of carry on from what Sunday was saying, are we going to end up with a situation in which PGRs are just expected to do most of the teaching? And, you know, if, if that's what the uh, one of these inquiries or consultations finds, goes, OK, what worked at most unis is they just got all the PhD students to kind of cover. That seems to be fine. Well, that will just make the problem worse because obviously one of the four fights is the uh, the status of PGR and the casualization there? So, you know, I I, re- I'm, I really don't know. I'm not sure I have any kind of particularly uh, brilliant wisdom to offer there. To be honest, it, it's a really tricky one um, because it is, as you've said, and as others have said, so vaguely defined in terms of what they're actually going to do. I, I would hope, as I say, that perhaps the the education select committee version does actually gather some useful evidence and goes, okay, this is what has generally worked. This is what the sector, you know, kind of with with the best will, with good people, with good faith and good intentions, managed to do in that. Situation situation and this is what we could actually try and put in place for students but i would fear that that's not the approach perhaps that dfe would be uh, would be taking through the ofs i was having a, a think about this last night too and I'm, I'm as equally muddled um but you know i don't want to put an idea in the uh, regulator's uh, mouth so to speak but um i was thinking you know if a provider fails we have teach out plans with other institutions could this be something for higher education providers to design between themselves what happens in the case of disruption could we have a teach out plan yes one option could be postgraduate students within the institution and we all know the faults you just articulated the mark but another one could be what about partnering with another institution who isn't undergoing industrial action just a thought I also would wonder uh, what would happen to the students that support industrial action as well um, because obviously a lot of students take quite principled approaches on not to cross picket lines and one area of disruption is nothing to do with industrial action but it always happens (laughs) is when students start sort of like occupying buildings um, and stopping teaching from going forward and like there's a hop so there's I guess it's a little bit like what Mark was saying at the beginning is that yes this is very much sort of premised on the idea that industrial action is disruptive and that students have been heavily impacted by that I mean obviously the unions themselves would say that it's within the providers sort 
sort of ability to <laughs> to, to limit this disruption by giving into their demands. Um, but obviously, that's simplistic because it's a national dispute. Um, but yes, yeah, what Mark was saying at the beginning is that you know there's it, it, there's a whole spectrum of disruption that can happen. You know, three, four years ago, um, we we didn't think that there was going to be a pandemic that would disrupt teaching. And I guess it's that sort of thing of like, at, like at what point do we create an entire risk register of things that might interrupt teaching and and mitigate for that? Or if we have a if we have a general sort of approach, which is again why why I always come back to this idea of like blanket no detriment type policies. But you know, again, that doesn't work necessarily because there are some technical courses or graduate jobs with you know regulatory bodies um who have sort of required mandatory skill sets um and the students obviously do need that teaching before they can go into those jobs right let's see who's been blogging for us this week hi i'm patrick thompson i'm head of research at phoenix insights a think tank looking at the fact that more of us are living longer this week on wonky i've been blogging about the lifelong learning entitlement and people's attitudes to learning at different ages I've been looking at new polling and that shows the demand for different age groups. We see that just over half of people say they're interested in lifelong learning, but demand is weakest amongst those who could potentially benefit the most. There's a strong age element. Nearly 7 out of 10 people aged 35 to 44 say they're interested in lifelong learning, yet fewer than 3 out of 10 are by the time they're 55 to 64. The reality is that we risk setting up a funding system with a lot of demand for lifelong learning from the very people who've most recently been in education, already highly skilled, or already working for employers likely to invest in them. We know that changing careers, returning to study or retraining feels risky and expensive for many people. That's exactly what more of us might need to do as we live for longer. Now, the Social Market Foundation have a report out about the growing education divide in UK politics. Sunday, walk us through it, please. Yeah, so this report um, explores the growing education divide in UK politics, and it argues that education has become the strongest predictor of voters' social values. Um, So graduates tend to be less authoritarian, more likely to identify as middle class and are greatly disposed to vote for Labour. Um, And this is interesting because graduates are set to become the largest educational group um, by the end of the next decade. So outnumbering people who leave school at 16 or 18. And it is suggested in the report uh, verbatim that there will be a hostile graduate electorate, which will be fatal to a party's electoral prospects. Um, The report also notes that forthcoming battleground seats fall at the extremes of the educational divide. So the battleground constituencies have either a high proportion of graduates or non-graduates. And it says that this is basically a serious dilemma for Conservative and Labour parties, um, but an opportunity for the Lib Dems. Um, Diana, what jumps out at you? Is there anything surprising here? I thought you'd come to me, Mark, sitting in London uh, with the highest participation rate in higher education at the moment, and it's going to grow. I mean, there's there's, uh, a reason why uh, it's Labour London, I guess. So in many ways, I think it does chime um, with what I'm seeing here in the capital. But I also think we can't underestimate the, the issues that can pop up that can disrupt this. I mean, we just saw with uh, the recent by-elections, Uxbridge is a case in point with the ultra-low emission zone. Everyone thought it would go Labour, but it didn't. The Conservatives managed to hold on to the seat. So there are those kind of issues that really do do cut through into local communities. And I also think, again, just looking at London, um, it's not so simple because with the higher ethnic diversity we have in London, we also have a a higher um, population who will identify as being Christian. So they're more socially conservative. So I do think there's an interesting uh, interplay between sort of religious beliefs, which come from ethnicity mainly in the capital, um, and also political uh, higher education swayed beliefs as well. 
I mean, the fact that higher education turns out more socially liberal graduates is nothing new, is it, Mark? But this does pose a kind of political problem for the Conservatives. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I thought, you know, DK's analysis, as always, was excellent, really, really emphasising the regression analysis element. So we're not just talking about correlation and causation here. It's not simply that, you know, yes, if you are a graduate, you are like more likely to have a professional job, assuming we can define what that is, and therefore be, you know, more affluent, more liberal, etc., or live in, you know, areas like London, perhaps. Um, you know, it, it's not as simple as that. I guess, you know, I think it is really convincing, really interesting. If I was to kind of almost play devil's advocate and push back against it, um, DK also emphasised it kind of happens around 2016, doesn't it? And, you know, it's not been a normal almost decade. It's been a, a decade in which, you know, a lot of things about we have had various versions of a conservative government that I think, you know, these kind of generations who have become graduates have had various good causes to perhaps find fault with, um, you know, if I try and be fairly neutral there. So, yeah, it, you know, I, I think there's probably a lot, you know, to echo some of what Dan was saying, there's a lot more going on. And obviously, if we end up with this a, a majority of graduates that are fatal, they won't be a homogenous majority. They will have different... Um, you know, different uh, other factors will, will matter. So it, it is interesting, um, you know, and we'll, we'll have to see, yeah, we'll have to see exactly, uh, as, as, as with so many things in HE, what will, you know, a potentially incoming Labour government actually do? Because, you know, if this is a hard lobby, it will make things like a graduate tax, you know, um, a, a much more contentious issue, um, to take one obvious example. All right, so we have an election looming almost certainly in 2024. Um, the, what impact does this have on on how students might vote? I mean, there's been a, there's lots of divided opinions in there about whether there is a student vote um, in in kind of the votes of the block in in aggregate. Is there something that we can learn from this about kind of a sophology of next year's election, Diana? It's a good question. The first thing I thought of when you, you spoke about the student vote is let's not underestimate the role of commuter students. We're actually seeing more and more of them at the moment. So I think it's too crude to say okay, this place is going to uh, vote one way because there's a lot of students there, because the students might not actually live in that constituency. They might actually live somewhere else. Um, so again, I, I'm going to go back to what we said before. I think it's it's too simplistic an approach to say, oh, yes, the student vote will influence it one way or another. Students are more dispersed than actually in the constituency of the university that they attend. Yes. Um, I guess I guess also what I'm driving at is is if anyone's got a view about whether political parties might want to think um, students graduates uh, we've you know there needs to be something for them here in the in the offer or, or whether this actually points to kind of the opposite it feels like no, a fairly obvious point mark but it just feels like everyone's keeping their powder dry on this aren't they because you know in particularly with this with this evidence coming out it's just going to be such a huge such a huge factor such a huge lobby um you know i'd love to see the labor government say what it would actually it goes back to the previous topic doesn't it we know that the thing that will fix industrial action not, will be not a government yet mark we're not a government yet no alas but you know um, but yeah, I, I guess I, I feel like people are keeping their powder dry. Someone else might have more more wisdom. I think the thing with keeping powder, I actually think that that might be uh, that might not work very well for Labour um, if they if they do want to take more of the graduate vote because um, you know this isn't just for the next election. Like this is the next fifty years is going to be dominated by graduate voters, sort of from before twenty twenty four twenty five. So like even if we like cap university admissions tomorrow we're in a mass we're in the middle of a massive sort of half century cohort replacement but I think that keeping powder dry on so for me I think it's a it, we're moving away from sort of class and more into cultural divides 
um, particularly with graduates. So it's not, you know, when we're moving away from class and intercultural divides. So the authors, you know, when they controlled for things like home ownership and income, there is a massive educational difference. That's that's where the divide is in voting patterns. It's not necessarily class. It's it, it's potentially more sort of like culture. And if you look at like Keir Starmer and some of the things that he has or indeed hasn't said on the cultural issues that are really important to students, you know, we have a graduate dominated activist base around a range of issues like trans rights, just up oil. Um, you know, you've seen the dissatisfaction that people have had in Labour's response to what's happening in Gaza. And that is largely from students academics um and i think one thing that the report meant well actually no sorry one of the authors mentioned when he was talking about a report uh, online is that undergraduates tend to be less partisan so they are less likely to say that they are labor and more likely to say that they will vote labor and the thing with that is they are also more happy to withhold their votes if they're unhappy with the leadership or policy direction. So partisan tendencies are a really strong indicator of voter turnout. So like high partisan is high turnout, low partisan, low turnout. And I think that at the moment, you know, the reality is that even though a lot of graduates are middle class coded, we're not necessarily coming because of, you know, uh, widened participation efforts or the success of wide participation. We're not coming from middle class wealth. And many of us aren't graduating into middle class wealth generation. Um, so if they're not offering us something in our economic interests, then we're going to be looking at these cultural issues that Labour are um, with staining on or not necessarily uh, putting messages out that that voter base would, would would want. I think the other really important part of this is that, and I think the Conservatives kind of might need to watch out for this as well, but I see a lot of sort of comments on the site that, uh, you know, for, for years now on wonky articles that graduates are less likely to vote Conservative and that's why the Conservatives have a vested interest in reducing the number of graduates and, you know, that's part of the sort of higher education bashing. But, like, the idea that we go after universities and that's just something that graduates are going to get annoyed at or upset about is not necessarily true. Like, Dan, I know that you live in London and or work in London and, you know, your kind of institutions are very much embedded in outreach and wider participation and I have experience of a very rural university that was a massive local employer like huge local employer of the, of the local community so this idea that if we're not offering anything to universities then it's only graduates or students that are going to be upset by that or impacted by that isn't actually true it's like overlooking the role of universities in their community as well and the impact that they have for non-graduate voters as well I, I totally agree with that Sunday and and there are two issues that struck me when you spoke that were, that were really worrying me at the moment I mean the first is uh, we're all appreciating the warm words at the moment um, and I've written about this before uh, but warm words can only go so far you're talking about educated people here and we're going to notice very soon uh, if there's no substance behind it so um, I would urge both parties to come out now with a plan for higher education and I think the second thing that concerns me is we saw the landslide conservative victory in 2019 it was a fight for the so-called red wall the red wall are going to want their seats back so an element of that sort of culture war I think is going to have to exist on both sides for good or for ill. So I do worry that we'll still be on the wrong side of the debate. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, there's been a new survey on the postgraduate taught experience. Diana, tell us the highlights. Right. So the good people over at Advance HE have this week released the 2023 edition of the postgraduate taught experience survey, the PTES. Now, this survey has been running in its current format since 2014, I think, and it's designed to give us a sense of what students on postgraduate taught courses are feeling about their experiences. And there's quite a lot of good news in it this year. Um, Students' overall satisfaction with their course experiences up, some 83% of students said they were satisfied with their experience overall and I think what is interesting is that this positive trend is largely down to expanding numbers of international postgraduate students who do tend to be more positive about their experiences than home students. But not everything is rosy for postgraduate students and financial difficulties, no surprise, can be seen to be negatively affecting home students' experiences in particular, as is the need to balance work and study commitments and coping with mental health issues. Disabled students too were highlighted as needed more support as their satisfaction score was a good 10 percentage points lower than that of non-disabled students. So I think the overriding message for universities to take home from this is that more support is needed for postgraduate students, especially for those experiencing other hardships and issues, and that this support could really make all the difference between a student completing or leaving their course. Yeah, definitely, Dan. I mean, there's there's a couple of things I'd really like to kind of highlight here. You know, there's some really positive stuff in this. PTS is is excellent, really useful. But, you know, on international students, um, the report makes this clear, and uh, and so does so does the uh, the kind of editorial on Wonky. You know, there's a there's a cohort effect here. Um, you know, international enrolments have overtaken the UK for the first time, or UK domestic uh, for the first time during this uh, this this cohort, this intake. And Advance HE admit that they're overrepresented in the survey. You know, these students come with a very positive view of UK institutions. That's why they come. You know, when we do our own kind of research around this at uh, Final Uni, obviously our audience is, is postgraduate, prospective postgraduate. You know, it's the reputation of UK universities and the course options that are the most important drivers over and above actually things like post-study work over and above that you know they, they come to the UK because they think it's good and it's reassuring to hear that that's what they seem to find but you know as, as Jim says on the site you know this can be differences in expectation as much as differences in experience and you know at the same time um, you know there was, a, there was a piece on Monkey I think it was yesterday or the day before highlighting the fact that it seems you know so far anecdotally that quite a few international students are you know not paying fee deposits you know we know don't we that these these students who may maybe you know may look rosy in terms of the surveys but they're not necessarily having a great time and if anything i'd say that uk domestic is even more of a concern it is shocking to me that 29% nearly a third of uk domicile pgts thought about leaving their course this year mm-hmm. that, that that is just that that is really really concerning you know the the, the situation 
situation around the economics of master studies is dire. You know, we have a loan that's been completely eroded by fee inflation, which may or may not have been necessary. I'm not here to bash that, but it has been. You know, we've had nothing else really put in place. These students will have to work part time. You know, a master's is hugely demanding. And, and I think we've we've really got to do something about this. You know, if, we, if we're serious about lifelong learning, as we seem to be, we've got to fix PGT and we've got to fix it for, for domestic, but also for international. I don't want to also rain on the parade here, but um, the thing about considering leaving their course did jump out to me as well. Um, And the reason that I say this is because leaving the course or considering leaving the course doesn't necessarily, or not considering leaving the course doesn't necessarily mean that you don't need support. Um, uh, Particularly, you know, obviously the stats around international students considering leaving their course um, less than UK students. Okay, fair enough, but that might not necessarily be indicative of a better time because there's uh, with the belonging research and cost of living that I'm doing at the moment um, with the focus groups students are often talking about sunken costs so you've paid up front you've moved across the world you've got less than a year you're gonna keep going you're gonna hang it out and it's not you know this I think this idea of have you considered leaving is obviously it's a good data point to have but a lot of students, when we've asked them, you know, do you still think this is the right choice for you? They're like, well, yeah, because I have to do this. I'm not having a good time, but I'm going to finish it. Um, so, yeah, I think that's sort of like nuclear option. And it is a nuclear option once you've paid your deposit and you've done, you know, maybe you've handed some assignments in. Um, I think the other thing I did want to point out was that disabled satisfaction has gone up a little bit. Um, but I would have expected it to improve, uh, partic- you know, so it's not, it's not worse, well, it's not much worse, but I would have expected it to improve, particularly with the insights and good practice we had after COVID. And obviously, like, you know, that the PG loan came out, what, 2018, 2019. So, this is in, in reality, this is kind of the first year that we've had comparable data that hasn't been sort of like interrupted by a, a pandemic. But yeah, I saw I sort of saw the stats on the on disabled students. I thought, oh, okay, well that's good that it hasn't got a lot worse. Then I was like, wait, no. <laughs> It should have got better by now. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting report. But, yeah, I think some of the headline findings, there's just like little bits of granular detail, which if you look into it, it might be that students aren't having as great a time as, as we think. Um, yeah, I felt the same way Sunday, particularly over the international student piece. I did think there could be a cultural element of, as, at play as well. Uh, some of these students do have pressure from families you know it's a massive investment to go overseas as you said you've got the sunken costs already but you've also got that cultural pr- pressure from home to go complete and succeed so they do stick it out and they'd be more likely to um, I also think the message for home students is you know clear for the sector that widening participation and access efforts don't stop at undergraduate level uh, going to master's level is another important transition point um, so I think we've got a lot of work to do to show you know how childhood disadvantage uh, shouldn't shape students prospects well into adulthood as it is at the moment i'm so glad you brought that up because um one thing with uh postgraduate taught students is that they often uh, with students from disadvantaged backgrounds is that they often do not have access to things like bursaries so um a lot of the care experience bursaries which many universities have and they're 
great initiatives, particularly York. York has a really good one, free accommodation all year if you're care experienced. The thing is, is that they're capped at 25, age 25. And in this report, there was continued financial difficulties, significantly different from those aged 36 and up, and for students who had free school meals. And we know that mature students, particularly those from minor participation backgrounds, are more lonely, less engaged with their course, less integrated with their peer group. So I think there's some work to be done in here. Um, A stat that I came across about a year ago that's always stayed with me is that 13% of care leavers go uh, to university. But when you when you look at age 30 plus of care leavers, it triples. So engagement and participation triples for the over 30s. But by that point, they're already they're cut off from any support. And it's, it's particularly prevalent in this data, because this is for postgraduate degrees, where oftentimes the bursary will say undergraduate only. And, you know, I, I follow a lot of sort of very active care leavers who are in, you know, in law, um, in policy on, on Twitter. And the amount of them who have had to crowdfund their masters um, is really telling. So I think that looking at the breakdown of demographics here is particularly important. Yes, we bought a postgraduate loan in in order to diversify the postgraduate student cohort. It's not enough and it's not necessarily helping the people who need it most. Uh, just uh, just on that, I mean, one of the things, obviously, we, you know, we, we, we have a lot of uh, a lot of data. Our audience is, is prospective students. And we've seen over the last few years that, you know, that it, it has diversified even more. I think there's a tendency still, isn't there, to kind of imagine a postgrad, a master's student as someone who's a, a fresh young graduate just going straight on. And yeah, that was what I did. A lot of people do that, but it's not the majority. Um, it's not the majority of actual, and it's not the majority of prospective. prospective. You know, one of the things the pandemic did actually that uh, to some extent that you know, it did so more so over and above the postgraduate loan was uh, there was that kind of carrot and stick effect, you know, with, with furlough and with free time. Actually, older students and, and the ability to study online, of course, older students became much more likely to do a master's and they've been much more robust, much stickier. And that then ties into all those points you've just made so brilliantly. You know, postgraduate funding works really badly for older students. It works really badly because of the way it's not tied to the fee. And, you know, often it's not enough. It doesn't provide any kind of maintenance. It actually, in some very perverse ways, if you've got children and you have any kind of child benefit, you could become ineligible. It's a real problem. Well, it's interesting you say that because women were more likely considered leaving their course in this in this research. Women and non-binary students were the most likely to consider leaving and they were the most likely to study online. So obviously I was thinking, you know, is that time, financial pressures, care commitments? But, you know, if you're making a decision based on benefits and, you know, paying for the heating over the winter, you know, that's a really difficult decision that people have to make. And I think the other thing is that this women being more likely to consider leaving PGT is reflected in the PRES too. Women were more likely to leave postgraduate research as well so yeah there's a whole piece of work around that and again having that kind of like like sphere of knowledge like looking at different issues that our students are facing and understanding that they're coming from different places in their life like what you've just said about child benefit I didn't know that (laughs) do do, do universities know that do do universities um who you know who are in advice centers know that you know that's that's such a vital piece of information so and that's that is very specifically tied to gender obviously you know there are lots of people with care responsibilities who aren't women um but you know on the sort of distribution of labor women do tend to take up care responsibilities and what are we doing there it's always for international too not not to digress but you know when we when we were looking at um we did some research with the audience uh on the the dependence ban we found that it affected it concerned uh female students much more 
because they were far more likely to have dependence. You know, it, it, to some extent, it's a stereotype. There are, there is, there is real data there. And yeah, I mean, the, the thing with the, the, the child benefit, essentially, it's the issue with the fact that your loan will count as income. So it can have these perverse impacts in various ways, actually. And it's, you know, there's just less support um, for it at postgrad. It's not a very well thought through holistic thing. It was great when it came in. You know, it's great to get that in there. Um, you know, hats off actually to George Osborne for for, for doing that. But uh, yeah, the uh, it it needs a revisit and it needs a rethink. People need to appreciate just how diverse postgrad is and how important it is. You know, just to keep banging the drum for lifelong learning. This is lifelong learning. This is CPD. This is important. Now we've been writing a lot about degree apprenticeships on the site this week. Sunday, tell us why. Yes. So. This week on Monkey, we have heard that universities need to go hard or go home on degree apprenticeships with a piece from MHNA's Matt Hamnett arguing that universities that want to deliver these qualifications need to do so at a, at a genuine scale rather than just dipping their toes in the water. So in practice, this would mean a balance of course types and subject areas um, to mitigate against future policy changes um, and partnerships with large employers at the conscious expense of smaller local businesses, despite what universities' inclinations to maybe to partner locally. Um, and this comes after rumoured restrictions on degree level apprenticeships um, that did not materialise in the autumn statement. Um, but the one thing that did appear was a very healthy uh, 20% boost in the apprentice minimum wage. Hmm. So, Diana, yes, it was good news, wasn't it, that the, the rumours about what was happening in, in autumn statement never came to pass. But degree apprenticeships still face a bit of a, a crunch moment, don't they, if university is going to really make them, make them work? Yeah, it was. And uh, I'm going to be brave here and declare an interest. I haven't declared this publicly in case I fail, but... I am a degree apprentice myself. Yeah, get get that, Gillian Keegan. Um, I'm actually doing a level seven myself at the moment. And, and even though I've only been doing the course for a few months, I've already learned so much. And, you know, it's really a great reskilling and upskilling opportunity for me and indeed for all my cohort uh, counterparts on my course. Uh, and that's surely got to be a win for the Treasury because if businesses are well led, then that will lead to happier employees and hopefully more efficient and profitable companies. So, you know, I'm really glad that the cut to level seven uh, didn't emerge. And because it's also not going to solve the demand problem at the lower levels either. What that's going to take is a cultural shift. Um, Whether that means universities um, stepping up and going in big, as the article said, I don't know. Because the bigger you go, the larger the quagmire of regulation you've got to wade through. And I'm thinking, you know, I've seen it firsthand, the the Ofsted inspections versus the OFS regulations. You know, that's really for the big boys if you're going to do that. You you need the big teams to be able to deal with it. And I wouldn't want to see some of those smaller specialist providers as like being cast aside because they just can't cope with that sort of regulatory mix. And and also, I wouldn't want to see the hard work that's gone into the local skills improvement plans recently in the DFE, the LSIPs, be cast aside because they what they've done is they've highlighted, you know, uh, local skills needs in each place. And that will involve working with some of the local smaller employers. Um, so I, I'm not sure go big or go home is the way forward either. Uh, I think there's got to be a mix. What's the message here for for universities looking at this? I mean, there's been kind of mixed policy signals and it's not always clear, is it, if, if, you know, how the extent to which universities are, you know, going to be able to sustainably jump into, you know, doing something like setting up degree apprenticeships at at scale. But if they're not, you know, if they they don't get off the ground, then, you know, that's going to have all sorts of other perverse impacts, isn't it? I mean, mean, there's there's some really interesting stuff in here just in terms of, you know, the various various levels here. I mean, um, I was reading Matt's, uh, Matt's, Matt's contribution, you know, and 
um, one of the things, if I if I understand it correctly, there's been a kind of a reduction of provision um, below below kind of HE level as well, which which seems interesting. So you know, there's some balancing there, perhaps. And yeah, I don't know where I stand on it really. What what I'd want universities to do. I mean, you know, I guess I declare an interest too, which is that I. I work for a, what you could call an SME in Sheffield. We have two, you know, excellent local universities and we do quite often try and hire from them. And we have gone down routes that are essentially, you know, apprentice like before, um, in, in the team I direct actually. And it's great as an SME. It's brilliant to be able to walk up the road, you know, and chat to some, you know, some enthusiastic students who are doing these kind of vocational courses or courses with a very specific professional focus, um, you know, interview them and potentially hire them and, and get them started um, and work with universities on that. So, you know, and I think it's nice actually to be able to kind of talk about our needs and, you know, the, the areas in which we do struggle to hire. Um, so it's, it's important though. I'd like to see, you know, I'd like to see a kind of, I don't want to start talking about leveling up and so on, but, you know, a kind of plan that does take into account local skills needs and equally not to keep going back to, to postgrad and so on I'd, you know it's great to hear that diana's doing doing level seven and so on i'd like to hear more more focus on on options at level seven it, it does tend to be business which is good but the government is keen isn't it on um, on areas like ai you know very um ai at pgt and very professional master's level subject can we can we do some of that through through this kind of training you know someone perhaps who is a graduate but wants to go back and do you know, an apprenticeship type course there. So yes, I think, you know, it, it, it would be interesting to see, uh, to see what, what, you know, what, what the sector would like to do here, but not, not so sure about a top-down approach. Pick up this conversation at Go Hard or Go Home, where next for degree apprenticeships, an event we're running with MHNA on 6th of December. Uh, that's a free online event. You can register now at wonky.com slash events. So that's about it for this week. Remember to take a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out about how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything that's going on in UKG, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Mark, Sunday, Diana, and Michael, who makes the show happen. We'll be back next week with the last episode of the year. Jim will be here. Until then, stay wonky. Stay wonky.